Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. And in this episode, the family of an Australian journalist locked up in China speak out. So Chung Lei has been in prison since August 2020. She was detained and then later on charged and tried on supplying information or state secrets to an overseas individual organisation or government. The nature of that, we're completely in the dark about. So that is Chung Lei's partner, Nick Coyle. Um, he's speaking to Katrina Blowers in this episode of The Briefing, uh, talking about what the Albanese government needs to do to get Chung Lei out of prison in China. But first, let's hit today's headlines. It is Thursday, the 9th of June, and I'm joined by Jan Fran. Hello, Tom. Of course, we're starting today with the thing that is going to affect all of us, high energy prices. They don't seem to be going away anytime soon. This is despite an energy crisis meeting between state and federal governments that happened yesterday. We agreed uh, many points of action, around 11. Again, no silver bullet, no magic answers, but material steps forward in a very positive fashion. I think everyone worried about their gas prices would love a silver bullet, but um, at least he's being honest there, I suppose, Jan. That's Chris Bowen, the energy minister. So although there weren't any short-term fixes, the ministers did agree to give the energy market operator the power to hold emergency stores of natural gas. And they're also working on a capacity mechanism which would require energy retailers to pay power providers to maintain extra capacity for energy shortfalls like the one we're experiencing now. The capacity mechanism, um, I mean, the idea for it has been around for a wee bit of time. It's slightly controversial because under the coalition, there would have been these extra payments that would have gone to keep coal plants running. So environmentalists were very, very strongly opposed to that. It'd be interesting to see what Labor does. They haven't entirely ruled out any kind of support or money going to coal or going to fossil fuels. Although Chris Bowen was asked about it, this is what he said. I think the principles of Outland are pretty clear that it should support new technologies. So interesting language there that they should support new technologies, but it sounds like he's leaving the door open that they might support old technologies too. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you've got both the chief of Origin and Alinta, these two sort of uh, massive fossil fuel companies wanting the mechanism to kick in ahead of 2025 and wanting it extended to coal plants. So there is a little bit of pressure on the new Labor government to do that. So we'll see how that plays out. And the High Court has ruled that the Home Affairs Minister cannot strip suspected terrorists of their citizenship. So this power has been tested in a case involving a man called Dalil Alexander, who was jailed in Syria after allegedly joining Islamic State. Yeah, so this guy's situation is a strange one. He's claimed that he can't be released from jail because he's got nowhere to go. Um, this is because the Australian government stripped him of his citizenship in July of 2021. Yeah, so the main issue tested in this High Court case was the law allowing the Home Affairs Minister to strip this man of his citizenship and whether or not it was valid under the Constitution. So the court said that Australian citizenship is an assurance that a person is entitled to be at liberty in this country and return to it as a safe haven in need. And the judgment came down to the issue of separation of powers and found that it's really the court's job not the governments, to determine someone's guilt. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, 
In 2020, there was a guy called Abdul Nasser Bembrika who was stripped of his citizenship, but this was after he was convicted of terrorism offences by an Australian court. So this ruling doesn't affect someone like that. It just affects someone whose guilt hasn't yet been determined. And this ruling has said, well, the government can't determine guilt if there hasn't been a court case, but judges can. And there's going to be another review into the 99-year lease of the Port of Darwin to a Chinese company. What I said prior to the election, and I will do what I said I would do, which is we'll have a review of the circumstances of the port. Yep, that was Prime Minister Anthony Albanese confirming that decision yesterday. Um, His government campaigned really hard during the election in key Northern Territory seats on the port of Darwin. So I guess he's following through on the thing he said he was going to do. There has been a review that was ordered into the 2015 lease of the port to the Chinese-backed firm Landbridge. And the Defence Department determined that there was insufficient national security grounds to scrap the lease. Looks like we're having a look at it again. Yeah, so I don't know what would have changed in that time apart from the deteriorating relationship between the Australian and Chinese governments, but they're not actually the two parties involved in this agreement. That's right, although Albanese did say that he was prepared to use what's called the federal government's foreign veto laws, which is where the federal governments can come in and they can kind of cancel contracts between Australian entities or states and Chinese-owned companies. So they did that in Victoria with the Belts and Roads Agreement a few years ago. Mm. He has flagged the possibility of that happening. Do you think that maybe, you know, this is less about the particular security risk of this lease and more about Labor wanting to make sure they look as strong on China as the coalition? Possibly. I also think it's coming at a very precarious time for the Albanese government because, um, as you say, relations have deteriorated and they continue to do so. And we've got a very kind of precarious situation in the Pacific as well, with China wanting to come in and fund a lot of infrastructure projects just near our doorstep. And China was one of the things that came up consistently on the campaign trail, both sides wanting to look as tough as each other. And if Albanese is claiming that he's going to open a review into this port, I guess he's got to do it. And Queensland has broken a five-year origin drought in Sydney with a 16-10 to victory in the first game of the series last night. Yes, so I did not watch this game, Tom, because I was asleep at 7.30. But apparently it was quite fast-paced. They held off a final Blues surge and they forced the game to a draw. Is this correct? No. <laughs> Excellent. So the Blues were trying to bring it home at the final minute. They got within metres of the try line, which could have forced the game to a draw because they were right in front of the sticks. But Queensland held them out. Yeah. Yeah, pretty exciting. So that audio is courtesy of Triple M. Yeah, it was a very intense game. Um, The Maroons can um, win the series if they get up in the next game, which is in Perth on June 26. So yeah, it was a big one last night. My brother George was there, along with 80,000 other fans at the Sydney Olympic Stadium. Last year, all the games were in Queensland because of the pandemic. And Jen, Mm. I think I, I have a slightly more interest in rugby league than you do. What makes you say that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, you're heavily pregnant, so maybe that was more why you you, you you couldn't stay up for at least the first half. Um, (laughs) 
But I only yeah, really let's use the baby as an excuse. It hasn't been born yet, but I'm very happy to throw it under the bus and use it as an excuse. I think you'll be doing that for years. Um, yeah. I'm sort of your casual rugby league watcher where I'll probably just tune in for the origin, which means when I do, I, I see these players, I'm like, oh, my God, that guy's amazing. Who's that? And in, in, in last night's case, that was Cameron Munster, the 5'8 for Queensland, who was just on fire. And then this winger, Selwyn Cobbo, who did one of the most skillful kicks I've ever seen to set up a try. But actually, these guys have just been killing it for years and I'm coming late to the party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, COVID's interrupted a lot of sports. You know, that, that 80,000 figure that you mentioned, it's the first time in two years that 80,000 people have packed out Sydney's Olympic Stadium. So, mm. you know, it's not, it's not your fault if you missed a few big key sporting moments. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, Katrina Blowers is up next with an interview uh, with the partner of Chung Lei, the Australian-Chinese journalist locked up in China. Hey, Katrina Blowers here with you. So imagine arranging to meet your partner on your birthday for drinks. You don't hear from them. You think maybe they're busy with work. And then they don't turn up at all. You go to their apartment the next day, they're gone. And so are all of their electronic devices. It kind of sounds like the plot of a Hollywood thriller, but that's exactly what happened to Nick Coyle, who's the partner of Australian business journalist Chung Lei. She's been detained in China since August 2020 and found guilty of supplying state secrets. Now, Lei grew up in Brisbane. She studied at the Uni of Queensland and she went to Beijing to work as a TV news anchor on the China Global Television Network. Australia's ambassador to China was denied access to her secret court session and her family, including her two young children, haven't been able to see her or talk to her for 22 months now. Now, despite the diplomatic tension between Australia and China, they're hopeful the recent change of government will lead to a breakthrough in her case as they lobby for her to come back home. Nick Coyle has recently returned to Australia where he says he's able to speak more freely about her case and he joins us on The Briefing now. Nick, describe for us those first moments you realised Chung Lei was missing. Yeah, it's stretched in the memory because uh, it was actually my birthday, August 14, and I was going for drinks on my birthday and Leigh was going to join later on after she'd finished her show. Uh, and I'd spoken to her the day before and I'd been away doing a few things and uh, I hadn't heard from her that day, which I thought was a bit unusual, but um, nothing that was that unusual, yeah. People, in the, especially in the journalism business, get pretty busy prepping for shows, all those sorts of things. So I didn't sort of think anything of it initially. But then as the afternoon, sort of evening wore on, that was definitely strange. And then I started getting some phone calls from friends of hers saying that um, where was she, those sorts of things. And that's when I started to get concerned. So I spoke to a good friend of hers who ended up, unfortunately, being detained about a month and a half later who worked for another broadcaster in Beijing and said, look, let's go around to the apartment the next morning and double check that everything's okay. Uh, so we went around to Lay's apartment and yeah, it was not immediately obvious there was anything wrong. Uh, everything looked normal, but then I noticed all of the electronic devices were gone. Okay. Wow. So what happened next? 
so the first thing I did was call a friend of mine at the embassy, and that was on a Saturday, uh, sort of mid-morning, late morning, and he was uh, going for lunch and said, look, I'll pop around and see you, um, explained what I discovered and, you know, do you think I'm overreacting in any way? And he said, no, 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 definitely not. And then uh, went across to the embassy and had a chat to some people there and explained to them what I discovered, and that's what sort of kicked things off, I guess. And then um, the embassy were notified the next morning uh, on the Sunday morning by the Ministry of State Security that she'd been detained. So they, they called me and asked me to come in and informed me that they'd been officially notified. Once I knew that it was the Ministry of State Security, that made me very, very concerned. Yeah, I can't even imagine what must have been going through your head as, as her partner. When were you able to make any contact with her? Contact was a couple of weeks later. One of the first things the embassy did was obviously request to visit her. So under a consular agreement, they've got rights to access any Australian detained in China. So it was a waiting game, really, of when MSS would allow uh, the embassy to come and see her, which was a couple of weeks later. So there was no contact until then. And I've never had any contact with her in person or anything like that. Neither is her, her children, her family, no one's ever had any contact with her in the 22 months I think we are now since she was detained. So visits are limited to a 30-minute consular visit from embassy officials and that's done via video call. It's not done in person. Tell us the information that you've received and that Australian authorities have received on what she is supposed to have done. We've never received any information on what she's supposed to have done. The sort of public statements made by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is is about all we've ever been informed. So that she was detained and then later on charged and tried on supplying information or state secrets to an individual, uh, an overseas individual organisation or government. The nature of that, we're completely in the dark about. She was a business journalist. Was there a particular incident or a person she interviewed or a moment that now looking back triggered this or perhaps brought her under scrutiny? What what did she tell you? Not at all. I mean, you know, in in the Chinese system, foreign passport holders, and it's important to remember that Lei is not a dual citizen or anything like that. She's a 100% Australian citizen and had an Australian passport. Uh, She first came to the country when she was nine years old and had an Australian passport since she was 16. As a foreign journalist working for the state broadcaster, and you've got to remember there's a number, it's not like it's one or two, you're simply not privy to things in the same way that a Chinese passport holder would be. She was a straight business reporter. So no, I mean, nothing that gave her pause for concern or me. What do you know about the condition she's being held in and her state of mind right now? Oh, look, it's been a very, very difficult road. She's held up unbelievably well from what I can gather from the consular visits. But, you know, her first six months in detention, and that's a phase where you're just detained. You're not arrested. You're just detained. I mean, that's effectively in solitary. You're in a small cell You are very restricted. You have to ask for permission to stand up, ask for permission to sit down. Lights on 24-7 and that was her first six months. And that was enormously difficult because, you you know, you don't have access to reading materials, don't have access. She was allowed to write for about an hour a week. That's it. 
and that was just to immediate family. You know, as we weren't married, we, we were living in sin, as it were. She wasn't even able to write to me. So that first six months was just enormously difficult. And then after six months, she was arrested then and then transferred into a different part of the same facility. But at least then she's had other cellmates. So she's had three other cellmates that have, that have changed a bit throughout. Um, at least then you've got other people you can talk to. And, and certainly her mental well-being has been significantly better since then. But physically, things have been a challenge. The food's inadequate. You know, she joked to me that my Starbucks would have amounted to more than MSS was spending on her security for a week. It's been difficult, but she's, you know, been enormously strong and doing yoga every day and, and trying her best to keep fit. But it, it's really difficult. I mean, we're talking, there's four people in a cell, one bed, so four people to a bed that were taking turns as to who sleeps near the toilet. It's it's difficult. It's the psychological element of you have no contact with the outside world. You can't talk to your family. You can't talk to your kids. You can't talk to anybody except for a 30-minute consular visit once a month. That's it. So how are you in contact with her? How are you hearing from her? I can send messages to uh, the embassy who then read them out to her during the consular visit and vice versa, and then I get a report. Yeah, which is a bit like a transcript, I guess, uh, from the consular visit each month. She's got two young children who live in Australia who she hasn't seen for ages. Mm -hmm. Where's the light at the end of the tunnel here? What have you been told about how long she's going to be detained for? Well, we don't know is the short answer. Under Chinese law, a crime like this, it can be anywhere from nothing to over 10 years. So if you look at the... Chinese law on these cases, it's minimum five, maximum 10, but for especially serious cases can be minimum 10 and cases that are not considered especially serious can be, you know, maximum three or deprivation of political rights, which basically means cancelling a party membership, not that she was a member of the party, she wasn't, but really it's how long's a piece of string. Is the Australian government doing enough? And is there any suggestion this case is related to diplomatic tension between China and Australia? I think it's fair to say that the very, very strained diplomatic relations, especially that we had under the previous government, would not help whatever this was about. You know, the previous government had no contact, as far as I'm aware, with senior Chinese leadership whatsoever. They were frozen out. Whether they were working with some other countries to make representations, I don't know. They continuously kept me in the dark as to what the strategy was. If there was a strategy, I have no idea if there was, quite frankly. But we've seen a much better level of engagement with the incoming government, which is terrific. We want her home. Her children need her home. Whatever she may or may not have done, we have no idea. But the idea that it could be anything approaching serious is, is to me ridiculous. And for you speaking out now, you've you've just left a, a pretty high profile job as CEO of the Australian China Chamber of Commerce. Does that now mm. give you, uh, I guess, a bit more freedom to, to be more outspoken and, and lobby for her release? Oh, look, it does. The timing for me was a combination of, yes, I've, I'm, I'm no longer in country and of course, you know, pursuing other avenues these days. But 
really the, the, the main reason I was speaking out is, is, is two things. One, I, I think quite diplomacy, as it were, what wasn't working. I mean, I've been talking in recent times to Peter Gresty and Kylie Moore Gilbert, and those two have been a, a tower of strength and, and, and what terrific people they are, by the way. And this is one of the things that we've spoken about. Um, as I alluded to earlier, under the previous government, I was never given any indication of what the strategy was other than quite diplomacy, as it were. But to what degree they were doing anything, I don't know. With the incoming government, and I think they are going to take hopefully a much more constructive approach towards China, that there's an opportunity at least for Senator Wong and for Prime Minister Albanese to be placing her case at a very high level of priority towards re-engagement with the Chinese government. And I would certainly hope that they would do that. That was Nick Coyle, the partner of Australian business journalist Chung Lei, who's been jailed in China for supplying state secrets. It's hard to imagine how you'd even cope with 22 months of not seeing or talking to your partner, not knowing what's going on, not to mention she's got two kids who are here in Australia staying with family here. But I guess what's giving Nick hope is his conversations with people like Peter Grester and also he mentioned Kylie Moore-Gilbert. Peter Grester, you might remember, was the Al Jazeera journo who was arrested in Cairo for reporting on issues damaging to national security. I actually cover that story because his family are based in Brisbane and he was eventually released after two years of lobbying. And Dr Kylie Moore-Gilbert, who spent 804 days in prison in Iran after being accused of being a spy, she says she wouldn't be free had it not been for the public attention she received. So lobbying in this way certainly does help and and you've got to cross your fingers for this particular family because it's got to be so tough. Listener.